Yes, we are at war. Very definitely, we have been at war. It's an economic war. It's a war of subversion. It's a war of espionage. It's a war of ideas. And it's a war of terrorism and infiltration. Is it as serious a war as it would be if there was an exchange of nuclear weapons? No, it's, the type of war we are in is far more sophisticated than an exchange of, of gunfire or nuclear weapons, even, because it's a war of uh, attack upon institutions. It's a war of attack upon every segment of a society. It is total war. That was Larry McDonald, a Democratic congressman from Georgia back in 1982 speaking about the menace to America from communist subversives and their allies inside the U.S. government, a threat so grave he called it total war. McDonald is barely remembered today. He died the next year on a Korean airline flight that was shot down by the Soviets when it mistakenly crossed into Russian territory. But the views of McDonald, who served as national chairman of the John Birch Society, eerily anticipated some of those held by the QAnon movement currently plaguing the American political dialogue. Like the QAnon cultists, McDonald saw conspiracies everywhere. Like QAnon, he saw shady and disloyal operatives embedded inside the country's intelligence and law enforcement agencies. And like Q, the anonymous top-secret insider supposedly seeking to reveal this grave plot against America, McDonald nearly 40 years ago vowed to expose the vast conspiracy, even creating his own private intelligence service to do so. We'll talk to Zach Dorfman of the Aspen Institute, who wrote a groundbreaking article about Larry McDonald, and the striking parallels to our current conspiratorial culture on this special bonus episode of Conspiracyland, brought to you by Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we have spent a lot of time on conspiracy land and skullduggery talking about QAnon and its bizarre views about the deep state plot involving pedophiles and Satan worshipers who are threatening the country and the role of the mysterious Q, the guy who supposedly is on top of this plot to sabotage Donald Trump's presidency and how this has grown and developed this very large following. And I was looking at a Twitter thread recently, and I saw our uh, friend Zach Dorfman weighing in, mentioning Larry McDonald, and suddenly <laughs> the light bulbs went inside my brain. I sort of vaguely remembered this guy from the late 70s, early 80s, and his strange views about communist subversives everywhere, and I immediately reached out to him, and you know what he told me? That's just when we were talking absolutely fascinating. Larry McDonald represented a district in uh, northern Georgia. It's 
pretty much the same district that is today the candidate Marjorie Taylor Greene is running in. She's the Republican candidate for Congress in that district who is notoriously a follower of QAnon. You know, I don't know if there's something in the water in that district. I suspect not. I think it's, uh, you know, what Zach's story, which we'll talk about, shows is that there is this really deep vein of paranoia in American political culture, you know, conspiracy theories about, you know, elites that are out to get us. And, and sometimes they're international conspiracies. Sometimes they're homegrown conspiracies. But it is a... Um, something that goes back really to the earliest days of the Republic and is not going anywhere. There are interesting changes having to do with technology, the internet, fragmentation of media. And, you know, some of these conspiracy theories can be grounded in things that are kind of more cohesive theories about the world, like, you know, the the Cold War. And and some of them are a lot crazier, like uh, what we're experiencing right now. But they are, in a lot of ways, rooted in the same psychology and cultural aspects of our politics. And uh, it's fascinating and bizarre. And at the end of the day, it is consequential, because particularly now with QAnon, talking about millions of people, who follow these conspiracy theories and have influence in their numbers. So, right. Right. Well, look, uh, aside from the parallels, the story of Larry McDonald is a really strange and fascinating one. So let's bring in Zach Dorfman of the Aspen Institute to talk about it. Uh, Zach, welcome back to Skullduggery and for the first time, Conspiracy Land. Great to be back. So, You wrote this piece about Larry McDonald two years ago in which you said you did this for Politico. The tale of Representative Larry McDonald might be the weirdest, most unbelievable one in modern American politics that you've never heard of. Tell us who Larry McDonald was and why his story is such a weird one. It is indeed a bizarre one and hard to summarize or even comprehend, but I will say that Larry McDonald, both personally and his political career and the arc of his life, is something probably uh, unprecedented in, in modern U.S. politics. He was a urologist from northwestern Georgia who ran as an arch-conservative Democrat in 1974, so he was part of the Watergate babies class, but he was a Democrat who was extremely out of step even then with his own party. He was um, very different from the rest of that Watergate baby class in 1974. Yes, which was probably the most liberal class of, uh, of Democrats in modern American history. And he was, he was far to the right. I mean, the Republican that he ran against at the time in that district was significantly to his left. And he was a dyed-in-the-wool supporter of the John Birch Society, which was and is a far-right organization that was founded as a kind of bastion of anti-communism, but also was involved uh, in a whole bunch of kind of anti-globalist, anti-elite conspiracy theories, many of which have echoes today. He was involved in peddling quack 
cures to illnesses with something called latriol, which was a, a peach pit serum that um, was found to be completely without medical benefit. He was under grand jury investigation for potentially having people that he was treating buy guns in their name, and then he would resell them. So he was under investigation for gun running. And then he was elected to Congress in 1974. Right. And then <laughs> after being elected, he becomes the national chairman of the John Birch Society. And we should point out that he succeeded as chairman, the founder, Robert Welsh, the candy manufacturer who uh, famously declared Dwight Eisenhower a uh, conscious agent of the communist conspiracy. So it gives you some idea where the John Birch Society was coming from. Yes, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was far, too, way too far to the left for the, the Birchers. And what's interesting about it is that much of Larry McDonald's political views were this kind of totalizing cosmic conflict between anti-communists and subversives. And it was also non-falsifiable because the people who denied that they were somehow conscious or unconscious communist agents, their very denial was proof of the fact that they were communist agents. So McDonald gets to Congress. He is highly marginal within his own caucus. He doesn't get a lot of committee assignments. People look at him askance. As you said, Mike, he becomes the, uh, the national chairman of the John Birch Society. He's the great hope for the organization, right, which had its kind of apex in the, the early 60s and had been kind of becoming more marginal with time. He was a, a skilled orator. I mean, he had this mellifluous voice, you know, as uh, listeners heard in that clip before. He was very persuasive. He was very good at dressing up dangerous and outlandish ideas with the kind of patina of reasonableness. And right. he spent a lot of the time in Congress trying to you know, be the real expositor of Birch Society ideals. And then he founded his own private intelligence agency. Well, I want to get to that in a moment, but just a couple of other delicious details from your piece that gives you some idea of where Larry McDonald was coming from. He kept a framed portrait of Spanish dictator Francisco Franco in his office, something I suspect few... Democrats or any congressman did, even as uh, certainly back in the 1980s, never mind today. Also, I found absolutely fascinating, uh, we're going to get to a moment, this private intelligence service, but he also was an advocate for releasing convicted Nazi war criminal Rudolf Hess from imprisonment. McDonald even suggested during a political debate that Rudolf Hess, the uh, longtime henchman to Adolf Hitler, should be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes, both of those facts made my eyes open when I was researching this story. And it pointed to the kind of alliances that people like McDonald felt were worth making, which was that if you believe in the communist menace as being the preeminent threat to freedom worldwide, then you might find yourself in bed with some fascists. And he made no bones about his preference for that. In fact, when I spoke to a former employee of this private intelligence agency he founded, which was called Western Goals, she told me that a lot of their, their, money, their, their funding structure was highly opaque. 
And she said that, in fact, a lot of it came from very arch conservative organizations from West Germany and Austria at the time. And they weren't entirely sure about where that money was coming from. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that they allied themselves with with figures who were on the kind of neo-fascist side of the spectrum. And this is the 1970s and 1980s, right? So you're talking about you, know, you had you had active Francoites still all over the world, right? I mean, especially in South America <laughs> with Pinochet. So this yeah. is not, I mean, this seems like ancient history now, but, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, it really wasn't. Right. Yeah. And of course, of course, Eisenhower made a, a military alliance with Franco because it was the Cold War and um, the United States and, and Spain had geopolitical interests in common, which was to fight communism. One detail, d- delicious detail that Mike left out, which I wanted to ask you about, and then I want to move into the sort of intelligence gathering phase of his career, is he was a teetotaler. But the, the thing that you say is that he refrain from pleasures of the flesh and telling his wife that uh, we're at war and you don't make love uh, during wartime. Yes, his first wife who divorced him claimed this, that Lewis during the 1970s, that he told her that he would not engage in marital relations with her at the time because they were in fact at war. Although I guess it was his very capacious definition of war. Um, (laughs) Maybe we'll get into this later, but that turned out to be not entirely true. There's a whole pretty unbelievable chapter of this story that involves Larry Flint and Hustler magazine that showed that in the end, Larry McDonald was not, in fact, a somebody who refrained from. I was going to say, flesh, I, I, I was immediately thinking of Colonel Jack Ripper in Dr. Strangelove when um, about forswearing uh, the pleasures of the flesh during strong total flesh, war. Strong, uh, precious yeah. uh, bodily fluids. Yes, you know, right. uh, Draining us of <laughs> our, our ability to enjoy <laughs> the pleasures of the flesh. So tell us about the Western Goals Foundation, what it was exactly, how it operated, and it became this kind of growing network of sort of intelligence gathering network that even involved the LAPD at one point. So tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, since most of my reporting is on intelligence and national security issues, this to me was the most shocking part of the whole story, which was that basically McDonald, you know, he was really jonesing to get a seat on the House on American Affairs Committee. That was the one thing he cared about, right? It was anti-communism. It was subversion. But by the time he entered Congress, the appetite for that was was waning. You're talking about the post-church committee era. There's intelligence reforms. State and local police forces were also reforming. There was this idea that you couldn't just keep dossiers on people for their political beliefs. This was not a salutary development to uh, Congressman McDonald. And so he decided that he was going to take part of his JBS network and then also people that he had established contacts with, both abroad and domestically, and to found a private intelligence gathering service, which is like very strange. I mean, just take a step back, right? You have a sitting congressman who establishes a foundation that functions as a private intelligence agency, okay? So that alone is a very unusual thing. And they were well-funded. You know, they had a, like a brownstone in Alexandria. They had a network of people all over the place. They also had specific staff that he had working out of his congressional office who were devoted solely 
to these analytical products and basically gathering information about individuals with what they consider to be ideologically suspicious beliefs. But the most important thing is that what McDonald realized was, or his theory was that, well, there are all these police departments, there are all these national security agencies, and they're not allowed to collect certain types of intelligence anymore. But maybe through Western goals, what they could do was they would launder this intelligence. So in the LAPD, for instance, there were all of these files that were sitting and they started transmitting those files from these units that had been outlawed, basically, because they were just spying on Americans for, you know, for doing politics, basically. And they would pass this information along to Western Goals. Western Goals would write this stuff up in reports and then they would pass it back to these police departments, and in some cases, federal intelligence and national security agencies. And then sometimes these reports would be predicates for investigations that they would then open up. So it was a way for these departments to launder their own intelligence back to them to allow them to pursue the targets that they wanted to pursue. And it was all focused on you know, left-leaning groups at the time, domestic and international. Um, they produced uh, an immense amount of information between the early, in the early 80s, uh, some of which I managed to track down in places like the Hoover Institution archives. So you talk about the board members of Larry McDonald's foundation, and it's quite a list, starting with Roy Cohen somebody we have talked about quite a bit over the last year, the longtime mentor to Donald Trump, previously the chief counsel to Joseph McCarthy. He was on Larry McDonald's board, as was Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb. John Sieglaub, uh, a uh, former CIA operative who was uh, a key player in the Iran-Contra affair. Quite a uh, stellar list of board members there. Yes, it was certainly eye-opening, and it showed, you know, when I was researching this story, that as marginal as McDonald was, he started to attract people who at the time, and certainly in the future, would become key members of the conservative establishment. I don't like, I think mirror imaging is a problem, and I, I, I'm very hesitant to use the 1990s Hillary Clinton vast right-wing conspiracy uh, language, but, but. You do have a situation where a sitting U.S. congressman creates a private intelligence agency that launders police and other data that is then used as predicates for investigations, and the people who are associated with this think tank, that is really a private intelligence agency, are some of the real luminaries in Republican politics and conservative politics at the time, including you know other generals, a former member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a few, at least a few other sitting Congress people. Well, yeah, I mean, among his friends, uh, according to your story, are Jesse Helms, uh, Jerry Falwell, Lee Atwater, Ron Paul was yes. connected to him, right? So very, I guess very one, closely so. He was I very guess, good friends with Ron Paul. I, I guess one question is, did these American political figures, did they buy into, I mean, they were all kind of conservative, anti-Soviet hardliners, but did they also buy into... The conspiracy theories, or did they just see a kind of a mutuality and interest here aligning themselves with him? And, and you know, what was the basis of, of, of that alliance? 
I'm not sure if Roy Cohen believed in anything other than power and the relentless pursuit of it. Edward Teller was a, was a dyed-in-the-wool anti-communist. I think that they viewed McDonald probably as a means to an end, although I will say that some in the, the military establishment were actually hardcore John Birchers and very much believed in this kind of anti-globalist agenda. You know, I know, for instance, going through the Hoover Institution papers for Western, the stuff that I found in Western Goals there, um, the main police detective from the LAPD who was funneling this data went and spoke to the board. You know, I mean, they, they, they were aware of what was going on. And I think that they were supportive of the idea that there had been too many constrictions on the gathering of intelligence, especially domestic intelligence on quote unquote subversives. So, yeah, I mean, I think there was real support for it. I mean, you, you know, if you, if you look at the case of like Edwin Walker, for instance, who was fired by, by John Kennedy for propagating John Birch Society literature in, when he was in the U.S. military, you know, he went to Dallas and did the same thing right afterwards. You know, this was like, this was when, this was right around the time that Kennedy was assassinated. So you had like real true believers within the U.S. government. It wasn't all people that were just doing this for pragmatic reasons. I think it was probably a mix, to be honest. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, people get wrapped up in that conspiratorial mindset, as Marjorie Taylor Greene showed. You know? So there was an investigation into the Western Goals Intelligence Service, correct? Yeah, it exploded in Los Angeles in early 1983. What happened was the LA Times, which did some incredible reporting around this at the time, broke the news that there was a officer with the LAPD's intelligence gathering arm, which had done a lot of spying, frankly, on leftists in Hollywood. They found that this officer, this LAPD officer, was storing like 500,000 pages of confidential files from this unit. And these files were supposed to have been destroyed because of those church era laws that, or church era investigations that percolated down to the local level. But instead of destroying these files, he had kept them. And he had installed a $100,000 computer system in his wife's office that somehow had a connection to Western Goal's main office in Alexandria through like a private network. And what this LAPD officer was doing was uploading and typing in data from all of these files into this computer network. And that just blew up a whole bunch of stuff. There was a big investigation in Los Angeles. There was a grand jury. Uh, Western Goals came under extreme scrutiny. And all of a sudden, things started to unravel, and the stories began leaking out that Western Goals was known all over the country as a kind of a clearinghouse for um, police intelligence data. Pretty remarkable. I just want to just go back to the sort of mindset that drove Larry McDonald. And we've got a pretty revealing clip of him on the old CNN show Crossfire with uh, Pat Buchanan, certainly no slouch when it comes to anti-communism, and uh, Tom Braden, the former CIA officer who was the co-host of the show, and they were grilling Larry McDonald on where he was coming from. Let's listen to that clip and then talk about it. You have people who are part of the elitist structure of this country that have dominated this country openly for 40 years. I know, but they're not, is that a conspiracy? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. If people quietly working together for evil objectives 
two or more, that by definition is a conspiracy. You have by their own admission, you look at the tragedy and hope by Professor Carol Quigley, who's a member of this elitist group. He says, sure, we've been working this. Sure, we've been collaborating with communism. Yes, we're working for a global accommodation. Yes, we're working for world government. The only thing I object to is that we have kept it a secret. Quietly working together for evil objectives. Zach? Yeah, I think that McDonald's worldview was one where a group of global transnational elites secretly tried to infiltrate and indoctrinate the average American into their dastardly schemes. You saw a lot of this with the JBS and the United Nations. There was this idea. John Birch Society. The John Birch Nations. Society, yes, excuse me, yes. uh, the United no, no, Nations. Not everybody's familiar with the uh, acronyms yeah. if they remember the John yeah. Birch Society. By that, the way, his license plate was JBS1, right? <laughs> yes, he would, he would zip around in a Mercedes, apparently, with that as the license plate. And apparently his brother also mentioned that after he died that he had... Um, he had started walking around all the time with a bulletproof vest because he was so sure that there was going to be a communist plot on his life. But yeah, I mean, I think you, you have this, this long-standing conspiratorial mindset in the U.S. that there are these unknown but pervasive forces acting on the average person that are determining the content of their national, communal, and personal lives. And the John Birch Society was very effective at expositing that. And now today with QAnon, you have that even more so um, through so many more channels because the John Birchers only had their pamphlets and then they had one very effective rhetorician in Larry McDonald. And today you have a multiplicity of outlets that can provide the same kind of frankly, nonsense um, that is still spun up to appear um, reasonable and cogent. But there's something deep in American life. I mean, anti-elitism is part of it. But this desire to empower people to feel like they now understand some kind of hidden framework or matrix that is dominating their lives. I mean, it has something to do with a sense of powerlessness in American life. Well, we will get to the uh, the parallels and the contrasts between McDonald's conspiracy theories and QAnon. But before that, let's get to how Larry McDonald died and how if he were still around and could talk about his own death, he would, you know, he might describe it as as confirming his own conspiracies, certainly a self-fulfilling prophecy in some senses. So what happened? Tell us about Larry McDonald's demise. This is probably the most unbelievable part of his unbelievable life story, which is that in August 1983, McDonald boarded a flight from New York to Seoul, South Korea, as part of a Heritage Foundation-sponsored conference. And this was Korean Airlines Flight 007. And something went awry where the the plane's communications were out and it veered off course and it went, it flew into Soviet airspace near Sakhalin Island. And the Soviets and the Russians today are very skittish. And on the Soviets telling, they radioed this Korean Airlines flight multiple times to tell them to get out of their airspace. And then at a certain point, they were not, they received no response. And then they shot the flight down and they killed every single person aboard, 269 people, including Congressman Larry McDonald. 
And this became, for McDonald's followers, evidence of just how effective he was in fighting the communist conspiracy that the Russians would go to such lengths as to shoot the airliner down. They believed that he was targeted on that Korean Airlines flight. They certainly did. And superficially, it made sense in that he was the single most outspoken anti-communist in the U.S. Congress and probably at the time, the U.S. government. And remember, this is during the Reagan administration, so it's not like there was a dearth of anti-communists at high levels in the U.S. government. But there was a flaw in that theory. Yes, the flaw. <laughs> there was many flaws in that theory. One was the Soviets would not have risked a massive geopolitical crisis to kill a single congressperson. And frankly, there were intercepts that showed that it was, it was a tragic and terrible mistake, and it created huge problems between the Soviet Union and the United States. He also wasn't supposed to be on that flight, right? He wasn't supposed to be on that flight, of course. Um, so yes, he, that was a last minute change. He was not supposed to be on that flight. So you'd have to believe a series of increasingly unbelievable coincidences to advance the theory that this was a targeted assassination of Larry McDonald. But that didn't stop, of course, his allies from seeing it as confirmation that the work that Congressman McDonald was doing was so dangerous to the Soviets that the Soviets would in fact risk mass murder in order to assassinate him. We actually have a clip of President Ronald Reagan talking about the shootdown of that airliner and making a reference to Larry McDonald. Let's listen. I'm coming before you tonight about the Korean airline massacre, the attack by the Soviet Union against 269 innocent men, women, and children aboard an unarmed Korean passenger plane. This crime against humanity must never be forgotten, here or throughout the world. Our prayers tonight are with the victims and their families in their time of terrible grief. Our hearts go out to them, to brave people like Catherine McDonald, the wife of a congressman whose composure and eloquence on the day of her husband's death moved us all. He will be sorely missed by all of us here in government. Sorely missed by all of us here in government. Now, I suppose that's, you know, the kind of thing you would say after somebody's tragic death. But um, it is interesting when one remembers all of the bizarre views that Larry McDonald held and advocated. Yes, and I think that there was a, a movement to make a martyr out of him, and there was an understandable desire because, I mean, there were so many innocent lives lost. But at the same time, I don't think that, that I think Reagan and the mainstream center right viewed him as more of an irritant um, than anything else. I will say that when I spoke to Catherine McDonald, while I was reporting this story out and I asked her about the Cal flight, um, she still pretty firmly believed that the Soviets shot it down because of who her husband was. You mentioned Catherine McDonald, Larry McDonald's widow. She decided to run for her husband's open seat after he died. And that brings us to another really bizarre wrinkle in this story, which you alluded to earlier on involving Larry Flint, the yes. own publisher of Hustler <laughs> magazine. So at, th at this point, our listeners are saying this, none of this can be true, but it is. So tell us about uh, Larry Flint. 
I had that feeling many times when I was reporting this story out, by the way. It was, it was too much for one person's life. So yes, Catherine McDonald was recruited by uh, Larry McDonald's allies to, on the new right to run for his seat. But Catherine McDonald did not realize at the time when she was running, although it probably dawned on her pretty quickly, that she had, she had a, a real enemy in Larry Flint. And Larry Why? Flint believed, Larry Flint, <laughs> you'll have to bear with, the, the listener okay. will have to bear with me. Larry Flint, Larry Flint was shot and crippled by a mass murdering white supremacist terrorist who was opposed to interracial sex and therefore believed that Hustler was something that should not exist. And because Hustler was, was and I think still is, a... Um, um, don't ask me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not Rudy Giuliani. Um, <laughs> um, it's a pornographic magazine. And so Flint was shot in McDonald's district. And Flint believed, without any evidence, that Larry McDonald somehow had some role in his shooting because Larry McDonald was, at least publicly, a big proponent of, you know, right-wing Christian values. So this is a conspiracy theory by Larry Flint that yeah, Larry yes. McDonald was going after him. Yes, exactly. Okay. Both of these two characters, <laughs> by the way, believe that they were involved in conspiracy theories about their own assassinations or assassination attempts. Yes, actually, I did not think about that, but that is true. So you now have, you have conspiracy upon conspiracy. And so Larry Flint uh, dumped a bunch of money, not only into the McDonald widow's primary opponents, but also her Democratic opponents. He just pushed a bunch of money in a specific targeted effort to defeat her, which she was. But that wasn't the only thing that Larry Flint did. Larry Flint also, and I believe he, this was a pattern he established in the 80s and 90s, he put up huge sums if people could provide pornographic photos of public officials um, that would show their hypocrisy on sexual matters. And in Larry McDonald's case, he succeeded in attaining those photos. And they were published after McDonald died, but there is a, there is a unnerving and graphic series of photos of him uh, having sex with a mistress of his around this time. Um, and I found, for my sins, I found a copy of this penthouse and I have seen the article in the photos and it's not pretty again. But so after his death, there was an insult to injury where he was shown to be a hypocrite on a core moral matter. But by that time, McDonald was already dead. So, so after had, depriving uh, his wife of the pleasures of the flesh in order to pursue his uh, war against uh, the vast international conspiracy of communism, she learned that, in fact, he was taking time off from the fight to enjoy the pleasures of the flesh with another woman. Yes, different wife, but yes, the, the, the point stands that he was shown to be uh, a man who had, uh, as, you know, as we've seen many times, the public persona and private life can diverge significantly. So yeah, so she, she lost her congressional race. She did not run for office again. This kind of jihad by Larry Flint uh, managed, to, managed to succeed. 
So I just wanted to sort of bring the story forward to Larry McDonald through the ages. Starting with, you mentioned he was very tight with Ron Paul, the former Texas congressman, former presidential candidate, father of Rand Paul, the Kentucky senator. And um, there was quite an alliance there between Ron Paul and Larry McDonald. In fact, Ron Paul may have been the one ally Larry McDonald had in Congress. Yeah, they were they were each other's closest ideological companion in, in Congress at the time. They were both doctors. They came from different political parties, but ideologically they were quite simpatico. And it's been an interesting an interesting part of Ron Paul's philosophical development is his closeness to the John Birch Society, which has gotten papered over over time. And it's interesting because, you know, Ron Paul is still seen as a little bit marginal, but as time went on, he moved from the outer rings of the Republican Party to something that was, you know, if not in the inner rings, much more mainstream than where he began. Um, And, you know, he garnered significant following in his presidential runs. And it's interesting to think about what would have happened to Larry McDonald, right? Because he was, frankly, far more charismatic than, um, than Ron Paul. And he had a very, very similar set of beliefs. And you could see these two men on parallel tracks, and you could absolutely conceive of a future where Larry McDonald, if he had not been killed, tragically, would have become a much more prominent voice within the conservative movement. You've talked about the echoes and parallels uh, between the kind of conspiratorial thinking that uh, we see in, in Larry McDonald and QAnon. But there are also differences. Talk a little bit about how conspiracy thinking has evolved in this country, how it's different, and why it is different. I mean, I think, I think the biggest difference is that for all the wild things that were being spun up by the John Birch Society, they were rooted in certain verifiable facts about American life. Like, for instance, that in the post-World War II era, there were... A uh, there was an explosion of global governance institutions that had a greater influence over international life, that there was an involving welfare state and regulatory state that penetrated Americans' lives in ways that they hadn't before. And people were alive to have seen these huge structural shifts, um, both in American domestic politics and international politics take place. And there was a Soviet Union that did actually sponsor subversion all over the world. It was far less effective and ubiquitous, as Larry McDonald believed, but it certainly existed. I mean, the Soviets carried out extensive propaganda, disinformation, active measures campaigns. They had agents all over the world. I mean, again, many times ineffective, and as time went on, they became more and more marginal, not less. I mean, what you saw in the 30s with popular fronts, and in the 40s, dissipated over time as people realized the horrors of Stalinism, and then there was the big Khrushchev break. But anyway, like the and, point and there is, was a real there was a real war of ideas between Soviet-style communism and Western democratic capitalism. That was a real divide in the world, right? And people saw saw a lot of you know what was happening through that lens. It was real and it was tangible and it was 
I mean, it was intensely and intimately geographic for people with, when you had a city like Berlin that was split along these ideological yeah. lines. I mean, there exactly. were people, I mean, it was something that people lived and felt every day. And it was understandable to an extent. And I think the broad American consensus was one of anti-communism, both liberal and more conservative. McDonald represented a really radical strain of that thinking, but it was still rooted in geopolitical realities. There is no geopolitical reality behind the idea that John Podesta runs a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. It is literally word salad. And I think that the fact that this is now these are now completely un untethered from reality because you have these kind of like communities of affinity online that are spinning up things like Q, you know, which has, frankly, it, there's nothing in QAnon that has any basis in reality. And so that, I think, is the major difference. Um, you could see a scenario where you could pull back the Birchers, you know, William F. Buckley famously, you know, wanted to excise the Birchers from the conservative movement um, because it was the idea that, yeah, you can be a strong anti-communist conservative without spinning out into these conspiratorial uh, wild lands. On cue, I don't think that's possible, frankly. I think if you come, <laughs> if you're coming into Congress as a Q believer, you are entirely untethered from um, what's real and what isn't. And I think, in a way, that's actually significantly more dangerous. And yet, we have a president who refuses to disavow the support of QAnon, says there are people who love our country and are against pedophilia and what's wrong with that. And as we mentioned at the, at the top, the woman running as the Republican candidate for Congress in largely the district that Larry McDonald once represented, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has been a QAnon follower. You mentioned to me when we talked on the phone, you spent a lot of time in Western Colorado where there's another Republican candidate running who has flirted with QAnon and is also has a good chance of winning. So we could have two QAnon supporters in Congress come January. Yeah, I mean, the congressional candidate in Colorado District 3, which is basically the entire Western half of the, the state, is somebody who is, I guess you would say, QAnon curious, who said that her mother is a QAnon supporter and she hopes it's true, but she doesn't know it's true. And after she, um, she kind of tiptoed into that space, she's been walking it back um, ever since. Her name is Lauren Bobert. And I think there has also been data that has shown that within the um, Republican primary electorate, there are significant percentages of people who either believe that either part or all of QAnon are true. And so, you know, this is starting to seep into the larger politics of the era. Yeah, well, it's the, it's the mainstreaming of QAnon. And, and Isakoff, you wrote about this, the story that you did on the uh, Republican National Campaign Committee running advertisements around the country appealing to uh, QAnon supporters. And we had Tom Malinowski, Democrat from New Jersey on our podcast, talking about how he was one of their targets. Right. That, that he was helping to protect pedophiles hiding in the shadows. And uh, which, although, of course, it, we need to say is utter and total false. nonsense. We do <laughs> exactly. have to say that because yes, we do. don't know how many Q followers listen to Skullduggery. 
<laughs> oh, I'm sure they're monitoring us. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it is a very strange uh, world we're living in right now uh, in American politics, even while the polls show you know, the likelihood of a, a, a Joe Biden victory and Democrats doing very well. Uh, the uh, QAnon has seeped into the Republican Party. And come January, a reminder, the heirs of Larry McDonald may well be with us. Uh, they're certainly with us out on the campaign trail right now. Zach Dorfman was a fascinating piece you did for Politico on this that kind of anticipated a lot of the um, the parallels that uh, we wanted to talk about today. So thanks for joining us and uh, let's uh, keep in touch as the QAnon phenomenon continues. Mike and Dan, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. <laughs> 